This is Beyond Belief Sobriety, a podcast that explores topics of interest to people who are seeking or who have found a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Well, hello, and thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I hope it will be a good experience for you and that it adds a little something extra to your recovery capital. This particular episode features a conversation about the use of psychedelics in the treatment of addiction and other behavioral health disorders. My guest, Ted Perkins, has a lot of experience around this topic, and I found this to be an interesting and worthwhile conversation, and I hope you do as well. But before we get started, I would like to thank our sponsor, Soberlink. If you're seeking a tangible way to maintain accountability and prove sobriety to loved ones, you have to try Soberlink. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, they've created a remote alcohol monitoring system that revolutionizes the way people document sobriety. The system includes a breathalyzer and uses artificial intelligence to display your test results in a calendar format, helping you analyze your habits and prove to yourself and others that you are, in fact, not drinking. It even has real-time results, facial recognition, and tamper detection, so no one will question the validity of your results. Soberlink and I have created a guide called Five Tools and Strategies for Those on a Secular Path to Recovery that you can find at Soberlink.com BBS. So if you're ready to take the next step in your recovery journey, mention the Beyond Belief Sobriety Podcast when ordering Soberlink, and you'll receive $50 off their device. And now, episode 252, The Use of Psychedelics in Addiction Treatment. Welcome, Ted. It's nice to have you here. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of your work and I'm really happy to be joining your community. Hello, everyone. You're in good hands with uh, Beyond Belief Sobriety. Well, thanks for being here. So I guess a good way to start, Ted, is why don't we, why don't you kind of introduce the audience to how you got involved in learning about psychedelics and going down that road as, as using them for treatment and, and what kind of treatment you use. So I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Well, I, I've used a smart recovery uh, for many years, for like decades, and now I'm a facilitator. So I host meetings you know, every week. And I have a, a lovely community of people who have used smart recovery. As you know, smart recovery is a secular science-based option for people in recovery. It's worked for millions of people and it's a growing organization. It has, you know, 30 countries are on board. We have thousands of meetings. We transitioned, you know, thousands of meetings from face-to-face to online during COVID. And now many of those are going back. And in my own experience, I, you know, I was one of those typical people who was surrounded by alcohol, you know, most of their life. You know, when I was growing up, my father and mother were in the diplomatic corps. So it was my father's and my mother's job to basically give cocktail parties and talk to foreign dignitaries and wine, wine and dine people, because that's, that's part of diplomacy is, is, is cocktail parties. So I remember my mother, you know, taking me and my sister in a shopping cart to the to the, uh, the local embassy BX, which is like, like the 7-Eleven of each embassy. And they didn't have any food. They just had bottles and bottles and bottles of liquor, every kind of liquor that you could get and every type of cigarette that you could buy. So it was sort of like a, you know, an ABC store, uh, alcohol beverage control type of store. 
And as I as I grew older, you know, uh, drinking was obviously when I was a child, never, drinking never an issue. But um, you know, as, as I got into adulthood and and, and got into these uh, these kinds of jobs, I worked for uh, two U.S. film studios, and you know, part of my job was a lot of socializing, a lot of social drinking, a lot of expense accounts, a lot of taking people to drinks and dinner, expensive wines, a lot of first cast class travel, sitting in the airport lounges with free drinks. And, Etc. And then, you know, as I got older in my career, I uh, I realized that, you know, maybe I had too much time and too much, maybe too much money, <laughs> you know. And uh, I started to see myself like doing more uh, drinking, you know, by myself, and uh, that that became a problem. So I did something about it, and now I'm I would like to say that I'm in successful recovery thanks to Smart Recovery, who's given me the tools. But I wanted to. Um, I had taken psychedelics when I was um, younger, when I was in high school, and I thought that the uh, insights that I gained uh, in those experiences were really profound. And so I thought, you know, maybe it's interesting for me to get a fresh perspective on what may have led to my um, alcohol use disorder, my addiction, if you want to call it that, and and get like more of a... um, uh, an interesting perspective on it because you know psychedelics are disassociative drugs that allow you to sort of step back from your ego, step back from yourself, and view things in a different dimension. I mean, I think a lot of people tend to focus on uh, you know psychedelics as a way to see dragons floating around or you know walls breathing or or those kinds of visual things. I felt that you know growing up, I felt that those things were actually a distraction. I was more entranced and more more intrigued by by the opportunity to really dig deeply into myself and see myself in different ways and problem solve and, and reflect on myself and my relationships and, and how I felt and what my challenges were. And I found that I had some really interesting results with that. I mean, I, I recently was telling a story about how a, an LSD trip with my sister actually, you know, repaired a fractured relationship that you know, we had really been fighting for years and had a horrible relationship. And then just in one evening when we were both on LSD, we, you know, we sort of had a real conversation for the first time in decades or, or, or ever. And, and it created a relationship, which is now like my most important relationship. You know, I tell my sister that I love her every day and we talk every day. And, and so I thought it was, it was very interesting to explore these, uh, these, these ways of reconnecting and, and then evaluating my own sobriety and my own recovery. Um, not because I was afraid that I was going to relapse or anything. There's always a danger of that. Um, and it's something that anybody in recovery, as you know, is sort of always attuned to. But I thought it was a very interesting way to uh, sort of see myself in a new way and maybe help my recovery along the way, sort of like a booster shot, as it were. Because smart recovery, you know, has worked and is working for me and will continue to work. Um, so I'm really a big fan of the program. And as you know, I, I work for smart recovery in the communications department. I do all their videos, et cetera. And then I've been reading recently, in the last couple of years, I, I saw many articles like you probably have run across about how ketamine has now been, um, ketamine is a disassociative psychedelic uh, drug. It's been, uh, and also a horse tranquilizer, apparently. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> but um, that has been approved for clinical use uh, for people with PTSD and, and depression and um, anxiety, things like that, in a very controlled clinical setting, of course not just freewheeling it. Um, you know, I was never interested in buying drugs on the street. I would never do that. Um, and then I'd also reading, reading a lot that how psilocytic mushrooms were uh, being used in palliative care and uh, giving mushrooms to people who had terminal diseases, who knew that they were going to die, were experiencing a great deal of anxiety and were able to take uh, you know, psychedelic mushrooms and 
and become at peace with the process and relieve that anxiety. And I thought, and then they also, um, you know, in Oregon, psilocybin mushrooms have been uh, psilocybin has been um, declassified as a harmful drug, and now has been approved for general use by clinicians with prescriptions and controlled settings for people to use um, in uh, in a clinical setting to treat anxiety, depression, and uh, and substance use disorders and alcohol use disorders. They were sort of like at the tip of the iceberg in terms of what these drugs' potentials could be. And I'm very enthusiastic about the future, what the future holds, and I'm hoping that people can sort of uh, move beyond the stigma that many of these drugs have. I mean, back in the 70s when I was growing up, you know, if you took acid, you were going to go to the top of the Empire State Building and try to fly, or you're going to have a bad trip and, like, you know, you're going to shoot yourself or kill or do a mass shooting. But, you know, uh, when you take these psych- psychedelic drugs, the last thing you want to do is, is hurt anybody. Uh, you're surrounded by love, peace, and, and general reconnection with the universe. So uh, given, given all that, and then I also heard about a drug called ayahuasca, which was sort of uh, very intriguing as well. And I've grown up in a lot of these different countries in Latin America, and I'm, I'm a, a student of religion and uh, religious traditions. And, and I thought that the intersection between ayahuasca, which is a psychedelic drug, and shamanism and uh, religiosity and syncretism, et cetera, was, was fascinating to me. So I decided that one of my... Uh, as part of my fascination with these issues, I thought, well, let's try a couple, see what the experiences are like. And I'm happy to share some of those experiences with you today. Cool. So the, the way that these are used to um, kind of reminds me of, of hypnosis and that you it's, it's not like a long term use that you're, you're you just use it for short term to change your thinking or to, to um, have a new awareness uh, that is that the way that they're used? It's not like you're given an antidepressant that you take for years on end on a regular basis, right? Oh, I, I doubt whether you'd be able to function uh, <laughs> in society or even personally if you took uh, doses. <laughs> of but there are um, there's a couple different things happening, and this is also a very interesting thing. Is that you know when you do a uh, psychedelic trip, as it were, you want to call it a trip or experience. The the experience is you know transcendent. It's uh, it's ethereal. It's uh, ephemeral. It's it's very difficult to describe. You it's one of those things where you know what happened, but if you had to write it down on paper or tell somebody, it's really tough. It's ineffable in a way. It's indescribable. But um, the experience is interest is important. And so what you take from each experience is something that you then catalog and use and it becomes a memory. And then you apply that memory of that, that experience to address other issues. You, sometimes you have like extraordinary breakthroughs where you realize, oh, my God, I don't want to be a lawyer. I should be a doctor. Or, you know what? I never told my mother that I loved her. <laughs> I've been so angry at her for something. I'm going to just call her on the phone and, and clear this up. And then, you know, these amazing breakthroughs can happen. These are just examples of some of the things that happen. Or, you know, somebody with PTSD can take, you know, ecstasy in a clinical setting and a one-time basis or maybe a couple of times. And in the process of going through that treatment with a psychologist, they reenact or relive what happened. They come to peace with it. They come to terms and they realize that their guilt about perhaps somebody else's death during a firefight in Iraq this caused them a great deal of anxiety, but they can let that go because what happened happened and they have the rest of their life to live out and, and they become at peace and, and they love them and they're allowed a space to love each other, to love themselves again. 
and, and move on. And those are one-time experiences or several types of experiences. Now there's um, this thing which is called uh, microdosing, which is interesting where it's become somewhat trendy where people can take very small quantities of LSD, usually LSD, and they found that it has applications in the fact that they can still function, do their job, but it gives them like, like this little edge or just this ability to be more empathetic, more open, um, and deal with their things and deal with their depression and anxiety. And there's a book about this. It's called A Good Day or I'm Having a Good Day or I'll, I'll Look It Up For You. But it's about a lady who suffered from really, really horrible depression, and it was affecting her ability to even work. And she decided to do a, an experiment where she microdosed every day for a month, or maybe she's still doing it. And she reveals some of the amazing breakthroughs that she had in her work and her relationships, and her ability to function, and to overcome her crippling depression in a way that allowed her to live a life. Those are the two things that, that you can do with um, the, these chemicals. I'm sure, you know, at the, at the government level or at the FDA level or the, you know, um, control board level, there's certainly some concern that people will, you know, try to abuse these drugs, but but that's true of any substance. And, you know, we've seen now at Smart Recovery with the legalization of marijuana and now people doing concentrated THC and things. We're, we're finding a lot of people coming into the recovery space where they, you know, started with THC to relieve some either imagined or real physical malady or depression or what have you aches and pains, whatever the justification is for getting the card that allows you to buy cannabis um, or THC. And now realizing that you know, they've become really dependent on, on that drug and, and it's having adverse consequences like any other substance or behavior um, that comes along. So there is the fear that that might be a factor. But I think that, that the, the protocols thus far in terms of like, you know, the Controlled Act Substances, uh, this Controlled Substances Act and and the gradual approach to legalizing psilocybic mushrooms and, and eventually perhaps clinical use of LSD, which is now happening um, as well. All of this are in clinical trials with uh, you know, peer-reviewed results and large samples. And, and I even um, volunteered to be part of a longitudinal study as well. Oh, interesting. Um, what, what, what's involved with that? And have you started that yet? I, I haven't done it. I, it was... Um, uh, I, Worked with a doctor who who uh, had me have a, a session with ketamine, and I told him about my previous ex, uh, experience with uh, psilocybin mushrooms, psilocybin. And um, I also told him that I had like a you know I described my, my level of self perception, etc., and the fact that I was like I would find myself mentally healthy and, and not in in a, in a situation where I would call myself depressed or chronic anxiety or anything like that or PTSD. So he said, look. You don't. You seem like you've got your stuff together enough that we would want somebody who is suffering from some, you know, fairly challenging mental health issues, and to use them as a as a as a as a person to drug with. So I didn't quite qualify. But what's it, what could be interesting about this is that it would save years and years of therapy that a person might have to go through. If I'm understanding this right. Well, that is one of the promises of uh, especially ecstasy therapy in general because it doesn't really involve. It doesn't involve hallucinations, generally. Um, the world becomes a little bit wobbly and a little energetic, but it's generally uh, ecstasy is used as a way to connect with people deeply, to love people. That's why people go to raves and they dance with one another and they want to make love to each other. And, you know, I, I've got to tell you right now, I, you know, one of the great experiences of my life was making love to my girlfriend on ecstasy at that time. And, you know, it's I can totally see why people like that. I mean, there's there's a way to 
have a sense of deep connection and love with ecstasy, which is, which is again, ineffable, very, very, very extreme. And that's what people in the, and it became very popular with, with young people who were dating, etc. But, you know, that is somewhat like a misuse of what ecstasy, what the true potential of that is, which is that, for instance, you know, using ecstasy in couples counseling shows a lot of promise, where a marriage that is now utterly destroyed people, the two, the two people, you know, wife and a husband, or a husband and a husband, or a wife and a wife can get together with a, with a trained family counselor, take the drug, and have a breakthrough in their marriage that could have taken years wow. or never. So is it, is it actually being used? Is, is it legal for therapists to use this? Absolutely, yeah. Ecstasy therapy for couples, for PTSD, for you know other sort of even addictions, etc. So there's different applica- applicability. I mean, ecstasy will give you sort of like a very emotional, you know, short-term therapeutic sort of situation where you're talking to people because you can function, and think, and talk and relate. When you're on um, LSD, it's a much more powerful drug that uh, is much more about your experience and being out of nature or looking at a wall or thinking or closing your eyes or, you know, whatever. It's very difficult. Sometimes it's very difficult to relate to other people. So it's less of a social interaction. It's more of an introspective action. And the same thing with ayahuasca. You know, the ceremony that I did in Costa Rica was, you know, basically in a very dark room. Nobody was talking. It's a very personal experience. And, uh, and mushrooms can be like maybe a hybrid of both, where you're talking to somebody after the peak experience of hallucinations. You might go outside and talk to people. You might even go to the store and look at all the wonderful products that there are on for sale and go to the meat section and suddenly become horrified by what you've seen and become a vegetarian. <laughs> or, or you might really, or, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things that can happen with these kinds of drugs. You know, and, and they're all, you know, resoundingly positive to me. I mean, you know, there, there was an article recently in the Washington Post that you know people are sort of putting the brakes because there have been some instances with people with serious mental health issues and psychoses, things like that, were not adequately tested or screened um, before they went on one of these psychedelic experiences and then had like you know a bad trip and one person, one person out of like millions of people, but one person you know committed suicide afterwards and and of course people tend to look at, at that outlier. As oh my God, you know we got to put the brakes on all this stuff, and that's part of the frustration of the people in the movement is that uh, you know one bad apple is sort of seen as you know ruining a whole lot. When you compare you know the possibility, the risk of somebody having a bad trip, which is very minor if everything is done correctly. And if it happens, can, couldn't you be talked down from that? Isn't there a way that a good therapist could help somebody unwind that bad bad experience? And yes, but but um, you know after you've had after you've had a Say a an an LSD trip, for instance, and you come to the and you have like a mental health issue that's you know, where you're manic depressive or borderline personality disorder, or I don't know what other other mental factors might go into that. But after the LSD experience, some people, because of their mental illness, might decide that you know the best recourse is to do something perilous or or contemplate suicide on a different, more intellectual level, as opposed to you know what they may have been doing before, and so. That, that is always a possibility, but you know, people who commit suicide, as you know, it's they're they're premeditating their suicide. That's part of the thing that needs to be treated. Ellis does not hasten that um, that su- those suicidal ideations um, that they know, uh, but that's something that really has to be looked at and taken into account. 
I was wondering if using this for addiction, um, is, is, is it working because it's treating the underlying issues around addiction? For example, a lot of people who become addicted to substances or behaviors also have an underlying depression or um, other, other uh, problem. Is that, is that why this works for addiction? Um, I, I do believe that, uh, but that's my personal opinion. I think, you know, the clinicians and the researchers and everybody are doing a tremendous amount of work. And that's why, you know, opening up and liberalizing the use and the prescription and the controlled use of these substances is important now because it opens up a space for professionals to really evaluate these, these drugs in a new way, which allows them to answer the questions that you just posed. So, you know, um, how does the use of ketamine, for instance, help somebody deal with their alcohol use disorder? Do, does it give them a sudden flash of insight that says, oh my gosh, that's why I've been drinking all this time. Now I know how to fix that. Or is it something that allows them to deal with you know, a mental anguish from some traumatic event in childhood that was causing them guilt or shame and that they realize that that is the cause of their addiction and that now by you know, by dealing with that or making a phone call to somebody or reconciling with somebody who hurt them or whatever, or forgiving somebody um, that may have hurt them, a parent or somebody. You know, by going through that process, then the addiction has the possibility of going away by itself because it was essentially one of the factors in it was this unresolved conflict, problem, guilt, shame, or, or abuse. So, you know, everybody's different. Every situation's different. And that's why I think the clinicians are trying to use their best judgment from a clinical uh, professional perspective to figure out, you know, what are the best uses to treat addiction? There is uh, one drug which is used um, in these treatment facilities in South America and Mexico. There's a lot of these in Mexico. It's for people who have hardcore uh, heroin addictions. And uh, many, many see this as like sort of like the drug of last resort for them. And um, you get out to Mexico and, they, and it's a one night experience where they're given a drug. And I, for the life of me, I can't remember what it is, but, but it's a psychedelic drug and it's outlawed here in the States, but it's, I guess you can get it at a pharmacy down in Mexico. I'm not really sure, but, or it's approved for clinical use down there. And, and you take the drug and you have a one night experience and people have come back completely forgive their addiction. They, they go through their withdrawals in a totally different way. You know, for all extents and purposes, it, it, for, a lot, for a large majority of people, it, it seems to do the trick. And, and that's, that's really amazing. I mean, because when it comes to addiction, everybody's looking for the magic pill. You know, they're, they're looking for the easy answer. And a lot of people don't realize how much actual work goes into it. You know, we're a society that's made up. Ooh, take a booster shot or take a pill or do this three times a week and you'll be fine. Right. And and we think that there's just one route for everyone to take, too. We think that there's got to just be one way of doing it. And there's also a certain amount of resistance in the pub with the public at large and maybe even in the recovery community of medically assisted treatment, which I really don't understand. It's like that, like there's some sort of presumption that because I had a problem with a drug, all drugs are bad and I can't use them to treat my addiction. But we're, we're finding that, you know, medically assisted treatment actually works. And so we have this resistance to that already. And I imagine there's even more resistance towards the use of psychedelics, or is there? There's, there's two things. And one of, one of the things I want to touch on is this, uh, this backlash, not a backlash, but this uh, aversion to medically assisted treatment. You know, it's my recovery. We're all about medically assisted treatment. Uh, we are all about harm reduction. 
So if uh, we're not trying to say that there's a magic bullet, but if if um, there is a drug like Suboxone or um, Naltrexone or um, Epinephrine or 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 anything or whatever that is that you can take to alleviate your symptoms and then gradually through recovery get you know clean and sober whatever that looks like and not hit rock, hit rock bottom, then that that's a win because you know society unfortunately because of the the prison industrial complex and our, our judicial system is so heavily prejudiced in, in the form of uh, culpability, blame, personal responsibility, and being chastised and punishment. And this, as you know, John, has its roots in the religious Protestant uh, formation of our country, where everybody's in charge of their own ship, and when they do something wrong or against society, they need to be blamed for it, and they need to pay the price. To both society and to God. Fortunately, that mentality has then been transferred over to people who with, with drug addictions, etc. And they think that like hitting rock bottom is the only way for them to realize that they have a problem. And that, um, these, believe me, these people know that they have a problem. They just don't know where to get help or they're, or they're just too addicted to, real, to do something about it. Or they don't have the resources or the right health insurance or the right support groups. So, you know, hitting rock bottom means that you destroy your family. Or you run out of, or you spend all your money, or you blow through your, your kid or your kid's college fund, or you you know get into a, a drunk driving accident, and kill somebody. If if we're leading people down to that rock bottom where we destroy other people along the way, then obviously the rock bottom culpability approach is not working. And then the incarceration is costing the United States billions, if not trillions, of dollars a year to keep these people to go through rehab in prison which is not the ideal situation for people because they come out of prison, studies have shown, they come out of prison more angry and more prone to addiction than ever before, which is why Smart Recovery, I'm very happy to report, has been very influential in getting uh, Smart Recovery meetings in many, many prisons here in the United States and in Canada. We have a program called Inside Out, which has been very successful, where it's been shown that recidivism rates for people who go through our program in the prison system, have a much lower chance of relapsing or going back to their ways. They end up becoming, you know, um, uh, successful, prolific, you know, members of society. They, they go back to society the way that society would have wanted them to go. We have in where I live, in the state that I live, and I'm probably the state Missouri is probably not unusual to other states. There aren't a lot of places that people can go for treatment to um, at all. And a lot of the ones that we do have are funded by religious organizations, uh, faith-based organizations. And that's, that's fine, but the problem is with that comes a certain ideology and dogma that says that you must not have any sort of medication as you go through your treatment. And that spills over into the greater society. So, like, um, there's a law here in Missouri that if, you ha- if you're in jail— the jail cannot deny you your um, medication for your um, for your addiction, but a lot of the people, a lot of the a lot of the sheriffs or whoever that run the jails, they don't know that law exists, and they take these drugs away from people. So to have an organization like Smart that actually goes into those institutions and is science based is incredibly important, and that's not to put down the the people who have the faith based option, but it's just so important to value science as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> oh, exactly. You know, because, um, and, and then, you know, and since you, you know, 
we're beyond belief. You know, we, we have to get to a point where like we're really, you know, which is why your podcast and what you do is very important because people in recovery who don't see that the 12-step method of like the higher power and the sort of subjugation to a higher power or the outsourcing of your personal responsibility and care to a higher power is, is really something that, that can work for a lot of people in the sense that like by, by doing that, you're giving all the responsibility of care over to that higher power, which is why I don't like you to take um, medically assisted treatment because that's in direct conflict with what they're trying to tell you. So for instance, you know, then, but then you could make the argument, well then, you know, God or a deity created these medications. <laughs> what, what I know, I know. It's, it gets, it gets kind of crazy. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. But let's, let's not forget that, you know, the people who started AA were, you know, a religious a Protestant uh, denomination and has very clear Christian roots. Nothing against the program. If, if people use the program and it works for them, wonderful. You know, 12-step is very compatible with Smart Recovery. A lot of people go to both meetings at the same time. I have nothing bad to say about Smart Recovery. I've been to, been to 12-step meetings, enjoyed them, decided that Smart Recovery was a better option for me since I'm more, you know, uh, self-empowerment and, and science-based. You know what's interesting? I you you may already know this, but do you know that the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson, actually experimented with LSD as a treatment back in was it the the sixties or maybe even the fifties or before that? Yeah, no, it, it's very uh, that is a true story, and uh, it, it's true that it's been said, and I don't you know how to cite the source, but it's said that that Bill Bill's sort of conversion or his moment. Yes, he was trying to recreate that. He was trying to recreate that experience that he had through that through through psychedelics, and this is amazing because this is kind of what we have found is working. Right, you're creating this experience that changes something in your brain and the way that you think that helps you resolve these issues. We're actually finding that that's what's happening. Well, you know these these drugs kind of break down. Uh, you know, you, you, the person is a self, the ego, if you want to use a Freudian way of looking at things. You know, the ego, the ego is, let's say, in, in let's say my drinking. And my ego is, is built around, I've got justifications for why I drink. I've got, you know, business to do. I like the feeling. I'm not a danger to anybody. I'm not a danger to myself. This is fine. I'm young. It's great. I party. I can go out on dates. I'm popular. I'm funny. All these other things. And this becomes a very cleverly erected castle that you put around your ego which is fragile and we all know that the ego is very fragile so we put up these barriers to sort of block ourselves then and then when somebody pokes at that barrier we lash out angrily and say you're wrong we make them wrong we use sort of like you know we have cognitive dissonance and all these other biases that we apply to other people when you take lsd or these other drugs those cognitive biases and, and dissonance just completely evaporates and so you're, and those, and those walls that you've cleverly erected around your ego, they suddenly come crumbling down, and you're left with yourself, and a conversation that you can have yourself. And, and in my own case, many years ago, I think about thirty years ago or twenty eight years ago, the first time that I ever had the the knowledge that I had an alcohol use disorder was when I was on LSD, and I was talking to a friend, and I wanted to go get beer, and he was like, "Why do you want to go get beer?" And I'm like. I, I don't know. I want to. I want to drink a lot of beer. Why do I want to do that? It suddenly dawned on me, like, wow! It was a huge revelation for me, um, and that was the start of my recovery journey thirty years ago. It was was LSD the same way that what happened with Bill? 
You know who else I believe has has is finding this helpful is Sam Harris. Have you read much about his experiences and what he's doing? Absolutely. I've read all of his books. I follow his blogs. I have Calm. He's a big hero of mine. I actually introduced myself to him once and told him he's doing a great job. Oh, cool. Yeah. Isn't that isn't that interesting that that he's gotten involved in that? And and that's been a little bit controversial just in the atheist community, hasn't it? Because he's kind of gone on into sort of a spiritual direction because of that experience. Well, you know, I think, unfortunately, you know, and this is part of the problem of, you know, materialism and science. It, um, it leaves no room for uh, any, any, anything else but what is seen and heard and perceived and analyzed and scientifically cataloged. And I'm a materialist. I, you know, I don't believe in any higher powers or superstitions or those things. And, and you know, I look with baffled amazement as people you know, believe all kinds of crazy things with no proof or science behind it. It almost seems like the belief in belief is more important than actually testing anything anymore, which is sad because, you know, the United States and several other countries have gone through many different periods of like, you know, rationality and science was like really super cool in the 50s. And then suddenly around Reagan and everything and the moral majority, it started moving in a different direction. And now, you know, we're in a totally different, bizarre phase of it. But the, the main point is that, um, you know, materialism, the people who want to believe in something more than what is seen and heard, they want to believe in a soul or perhaps an afterlife. They want things that are going to, they want to believe in things that are more than just what they can see or hear. Because a lot of people look at the world and they see crap. They see horribleness. They see the world for really what it is. They see the world in the same way that the Buddha, when he was a prince, left the confines of his palace and saw reality and suffering for the first time. And it's a, I think it's a natural human tendency to kind of create magical thinking to deal with those things um, and not face them head on and, and sort of, and so that, that's a natural impulse. And I don't say anything against that. And of course, when that impulse for self-delusion and, and magical thinking crosses over into public life, that's a problem. Um, like what's happening in Texas and what happens in our political system when, you know, just believing whatever you want is actually okay. As long right. as you believe that, <laughs> as long as you don't have everybody else try to believe what you, you believe, that's, that's the issue that I have too. So to, to answer more to the point of the question then, so, but there are other avenues of exploration that have to do with your mind and, you know, meditation and something that's, like I said, ineffable. And when you, um, Take an LSD trip, for instance, and you feel at one with the universe and you close your eyes and you see a black hole and you see all of creation emerging out of it. You realize that you're part of like a bigger purpose and you see how quantum physics all relates to reality and the future. And you have like one of these incredible experiences. Like I said, you, you can't put that down to scientific terms. So when you come out of something like that, you have that experience you know, a scientist who's looking at you will say, well, you had, uh, you know, a physiological effect in your brain where the lethargic acid diphthalamine actually enabled you to generate more input into your, like, into your synapses, which released, uh, you know, a flood of endorphins, which then combined with your dopamine to do this. So they can get a very scientific analysis of what happened to you, but that doesn't get to the core of what it meant. And so that's what, what Sam Harris and other people and what I'm trying to also discuss today is that the ineffable quality of these experiences is actually the most valuable. Because if I, if I came out of my ketamine experience with the doctor telling me, well, your dopamine surged and, you know, it must have been great for you. That doesn't do anything for me. 
But if I say, you know, this experience helped me resolve this issue with my mom, let's say, for instance, that is that has real substance and use and utility. And so I think that's where that's where he's that's where Sam and other people um, are going. Okay. Well, I find that interesting. So where could the listeners to this podcast go to learn more about psychedelics as a possible treatment for addiction or other mental illnesses? Well, I, you know, I think um, just doing a Google search will will uh, unearth like a lot of peer-reviewed publications. That and that's what I actually free. did today. There are actually quite a few uh, peer-reviewed. There's quite a few. Um, but for the general reader who's interested in, in, uh, in just figuring out, um, there's, a, there's a book by Michael Pollan, the guy who wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma. And it's called How to Change Your Mind. Michael, if you're listening to this, I'm plugging your book. I'm a big fan. Keep on writing. Don't ever stop. But that is a wonderful uh, view of the history of the psychedelic movement, a look at all of the different traditions that use it, shamans, etc., uh, a look at his personal experience with, with the drugs and where the drug is going um, possibly in the future. So that that I think that's a great primer on. on I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get that. Um, this discussion that I've had with you is my first real exploration into this subject. I mean, I've read articles. I mean, I read the newspaper and I've read articles here and there about it being used. So I know in the back of my mind that this is going on, that there's research that's happening out there. But I never really have you know, investigated it any further than those little blurbs that I read in the paper. So it's been interesting to talk to someone who's familiar with this and kind of sparked my interest to learn more about it. So thank you for that. Sure, absolutely. And then um, there's another book, which I think is very cool, which is A Really Good Day, How Microdosing Made a Mega Difference in My Mood, My Marriage, My Life. So that is another book that people might want to look at. There, There are other, you know, there's, if you want to go really deep, you could read The Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley. You could read, there's all kinds of books about, um, about these experiences. People have written quite a lot. And there's also, you know, a Center for Psychedelic Studies. And there's, you know, Esalen Institute approach to looking at this kind of stuff. It's, it's all very fertile ground. And a lot of people talking about it, experimenting with it. And, and listen, you know, psychedelic substances have been around for, thousands of years they they were part of human experience i mean you know fifteen thousand years ago some dude some lady sure. accidentally tried to eat a frog yeah. that happened to have uh, coated with those psychedelic substances and said wow we should really like <laughs> more of these frogs and you know ayahuasca there's indications that it was prepared you know thousands of years ago in these shamanic traditions by the mayans or the incas and so and as we know alcohol has been around since you know, since apes, they learned how to ferment fruit, rotting fruit. It's been part of human existence. In fact, I would even say that a lot of the tendencies for prophets, prophecy, and religious sentiments, etc., could have been hastened by uh, alcohol or other drugs or even psychedelics. Yeah, well, you know, they, use alcohol, they use alcohol in these religious ceremonies, so it could yeah. very well could be. Part of these things, you know, uh, <laughs> the, you know, the whirling dervishes, they get. They get overly oxygenated blood. They have epiphanies, you know, and just like I had an epiphany. And, and there are there are religions, and there's one in Brazil called Daime, where ayahuasca is part of the, their foundational religious experience and the religious ceremony. In the same way that peyote is not, is is a sanctioned and legalized way for uh, Native Americans to celebrate their shamanic rituals as well here in the United States. Right. Exactly. 
Well, thank you so much for, for doing this and educating me and other list, the listeners here to our podcast and the viewers on our YouTube channel. It's been valuable. I'm definitely going to check out the books and thank you for putting them in the notes here. I'll be sure to include those in the show notes of uh, the podcast when we post that. So again, Ted, so much, so, so nice of you to come aboard to talk about this. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Happy trails, everybody. Yeah. Happy trip. <laughs> okay. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.